Hello everyone, it's Alicia Malone. Welcome to Magnificent Obsession, the show where I talk to the craftspeople who make movies happen. And this episode, I've got a really interesting chat with cinematographer Natasha Breyer. You may have seen her work on The Rover or The Neon Demon, but her latest film, Honey Boy, is fascinating. And I apologize right now if you hear some noise in the background. My cat, Miss Hayworth, is playing with her toys. Um, She always decides to do this as soon as I press record. But anyway, um, Honey Boy is directed by Alma Harrell. It was written by Shia LaBeouf and it also stars Shia LaBeouf along with Noah Jupe and Lucas Hedges. And it's a fascinating film because Shia LaBeouf wrote this script when he was in court-mandated therapy. He was in rehab and part of his exercise was to write about his childhood. So he ended up writing a script where in the end he plays his own father. So Noah Jupe plays a young younger version of himself called Otis, a young kid who is acting in a popular television show. And Shia LaBeouf plays his father, who is an alcoholic and quite abusive at times. So it was a very cathartic experience for Shia LaBeouf, but also very emotional. So the crew had to really protect him. And it's so interesting when you hear Natasha talk about the way they shot this film. It's unlike anything I have heard before, and it just makes this film even more interesting. So I highly recommend seeing Honey Boy. It's out in theater. It is now, but right now, let's listen to my chat with Natasha Breyer. So, Natasha, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. So, I'm interested to know how you got involved with Honey Boy. Had you seen any of the work of director Alma Harrell before? Uh, Well, when I got the script, I hadn't. Um, I didn't know who Alma was. And um, then uh, I got an email from a friend, a mutual friend, Antonio Campos, a director from New York. And he was like, you're going to get this script from my friend Alma. Check it out. It's amazing. Um, So then I, I, you know, I looked at it carefully um, because, you know, there's always like piles of scripts and stuff and... Uh, I, I try not to look too much uh, to the ones that are very, very low budget because if I fall in love with them, I have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, so Antonio highly recommended. So I took a look and I was like, oh, this sounds really interesting. You know, um, my parents are both Freudian shrinks. So, oh, really? Yeah. So therapy has always been a big part of my life and I always been very interested you know on the therapeutic process any kind of therapeutic or healing process you know from psychoanalysis to shamanism and so when I read that it it immediately struck to me that it it would be like a very special project you know and so I was intrigued Um, so then I read the script and I was like wow you know there is something here it's, this is really like an almost like a psychomagic act you know like Todorovsky could say like go and do a movie and play the the role of the abuser you know so that you can understand you know your father um, so I was super interested when I read all that and then I got Bombay Beach um, and when I watched it I was totally hooked because I could see that Alma was a filmmaker that had a lot to do with my approach to films and you know Honey Boy was an amazing documentary and it was so visceral and raw and at the same time uh, stylized and so really like driven by 
by her empathy with the characters and you know by emotion and yeah it just immediately felt like I could see how this filmmaker would approach this material yeah and I felt it was you know totally my cup of tea and that you know it was probably going to be something very exciting yeah um so yeah then I I met with Alma for the first time we just went for dinner and then yeah all started from there (laughs) because this is her first narrative feature but it is very much based in in truth of Shia LaBeouf talking about his memories of childhood and like you said playing the role of the abuser playing the role of his father which is really um I can't even imagine I think Shia like I was saying to you is very brave for wanting to explore his own personal life on the big screen but how did that affect the way that you and Alma worked when you're working with someone who is going through a lot of uh, his own memories well you know I, I think we we thought, you know, when we talked about it with Alma and also with other people in the crew before we started the movie, we had a certain idea of what that meant, you know, like we're going to be doing like film therapy and we're going to have to, you know, I, I was really concerned about finding the right team, you know, the right crew to surround myself that was not only going to be able to be like top of the game technically, so that we could achieve, you know, shooting this film in 19 days. 19 uh, days. Ended up being 21 because we had some insurance thing with the roll rig, so we got, you know, some extra time. Um, but, you know, the original schedule was 19. And um, so my, my biggest concern was, like, how am I going to find a crew that not only can pull this off, but also can create an emotional container that supports Shia because I could see that this was not going to be just a normal situation of, you know, just coming and acting. Um, and, you know, both Alma and I, you know, with Alma's also like really into therapy and all kinds of stuff. So we all thought like, you know, we've done this, you know, many times, you know, and we talk about whatever ayahuasca experiences and all sort of st- stuff. And so we thought that we kind of, have it under control and we had an idea of what it was going to be but then when we started working when we started shooting the movie when Shia got into set we realized that it was actually a much more delicate situation than what we had anticipated Um, and yes it made it makes me every day that I think about it you know um, respect Shia more and more and more because what he's done is so incredibly brave and also generous because I think through his cathartic process and his healing process through the movie, it's really touching a lot of people and it's helping them activate their own healing processes. It's really quite fantastic what's happening with the movie. Um, So, you know, in life, like I had experience previously with documentaries and sometimes with movies that, of course, a lot of the movies that I do because they're very personal stories from, you know, our house directors that are authors. Many times the stories come from some personal experience, even if they're fiction. So you are, of course, working through your demons and stuff, but um, never to this degree. So, you know, and also all the therapy or, you know, different kind of experiences I had to do with healing or therapies, um, they were also not being filmed. So I had never done something that put everything together. So I think all all the experience on the 
different, you know, um, fiction, documentary, and therapies in my past were really useful um, just to really understand what he was going through and also what we were all going through because mm -hmm. somehow his process, um, uh, his performance was so real, I couldn't even say that it was a performance. It was more like he was channeling. And so, you know, he developed a really close relationship with Noah and, you know, he would take him he to... He plays the, him as a child, yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly, with the kid. And, um, you know, they were really close. So he was kind of training, you know, coaching him and, you know, they were socializing before the movie and stuff. So they were quite close. But then in the movie, he would, of course, in the scenes that he has to abuse him, he would just save that abuse for the scene. And so for the kid, even though he's an amazing actor and he's very experienced, he's still a human being and still a kid. So it would be quite strong, you know, what was happening there, even if we all say cat and we know it's not real. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that what Shia was going through was so real, you know, before and after saying cat, because he was really in character and you could see as he's playing a scene, you know, you could see, you could witness that very moment where he's actually playing the humanity of his character, the vulnerability of this character. And in that very moment, while the camera is rolling, uh, and he has to deal with all the stuff that means to be, you know, in a set with other actors playing and a camera rolling, he's also in that moment, like, clicking, you know, like, really understanding something really deep about his father. And so it's like a really, really strong process and it's happening with all these people around and okay, and now we have to cover it from this other angle and stuff. Yeah. So he doesn't have sometimes the time to process all this. And it, we're talking about very serious stuff. Like if you process this stuff in any kind of therapy, you might need like a week, you mm -hmm. know, to process that. And here you just have to do something else now because you're in a film set. Um, so, um, yeah, it was really important for me to find a crew that could understand all this and could, you know, help me to pull this off just to get the best cinematography possible for the movie that supports all these emotional journeys, but also really, you know, be quite invisible on set yeah. around Chaya and really uh, support him, you know, through being uh, as little invasive as possible. Um, so was it almost like a documentary, the way you approached shooting it? Yeah, so that was the weird thing because we had to approach it like a documentary, even though we have professional actors that are able to repeat things, but they aren't really because Shaya would just be in character and he would just show up on set, he will not rehearse and he'll just step into the room and do it. And sometimes depending what he's doing, he can do it many times, but sometimes if it's something that is touching him very deeply, he cannot do it again. So we also cannot really interfere in asking, can you do it near the window because there's going to be the better light or, you know, can you repeat this or can we just come in between takes to adjust a light or a flag? Like I couldn't do that. So I had to get everything ready before he even comes to set. Um... Alma and I had some ideas, some planning of how they might be in the space, but that would all change. We saw that in the first few days. We saw like we can't really anticipate because mm -hmm. everything that was like a no-brainer when we prepared the movie and chose the locations, like Shia's going to do something else. He's not going to stand there. He's just going to be outside. He's going to come in and out. Like he's, it was not easy, you know. He will 
definitely not take the um, positions that you would have expected. Uh, and we needed to let him free and also the kid. So I had to imagine different possible scenarios um, and light for those different possible scenarios because the challenge was that of course Alma wanted to capture everything with the rawness of her documentaries um, with everything that we just mentioned you know like being non-invasive and capturing something that is real but at the same time she wanted a lighting that was cinematic she didn't want me to do three 360 degrees flat so that we can see everything all the time. She wanted my lighting. She wanted uh, to have darkness and, you know, and color and, and, and you know, a lighting that it's supporting the emotions. So how do you do it if you don't know where the characters are going to be in space? <laughs> so I had to think possible, different possibilities. It was like a quantum cinematography. You know, Shaya could be in that corner. It could be by the window. It could be by the door. It could be in another location that he wow. might tell me five minutes before. Whatever he thinks is right, he feels is right. And, and whatever that is, it's actually going to be the best thing because he knows better than all of us. Um, so it was kind of a jamming session where we have to kind of jam around him. He was like the main, you know, musician and we're just going around him and trying to support whatever he's doing. So I had to think about all the different possibilities and prepare for that. And I had all my lights uh, were LEDs, most of them. Um, Which the gives like a... What are the LED lights? Do? Well, the LED lights are, um, you know, you can. The main thing is that you can control them wireless. Oh, gotcha. and, oh, so and you, you can could change, like, yeah, change it so as you, it was going. Yeah, wow. so you can change the colors and the intensity. You can dim it. So basically, I replace all the practical lights in the motel and you know most locations with LED lights, um, and then my, my additional lighting from outside the rooms because I couldn't put any film lights inside a room because the room had to be ready to look three sixty, yeah, <laughs> like reality. So I could light through the windows, um, but everything uh, that I could was wireless. So I would be outside, you know, like. A, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 feet away from the set even on my monitor. Um, and I would have uh, headsets to talk with my camera operator. And I would have a set of dimmers in front of the monitor, uh, like a DJ. So, so then mixing sh- as you go. Yeah, so wow. Shaya comes in and arrives and he's coming from his trailer to the set and we're all like super ready because we have to roll camera the moment he's ready. He's there, Sometimes yeah. it's like when he's walking to set. And then we roll, and then the first rehearsal, it's just not a rehearsal, it's a take, and sometimes that might be as much as you get. Or sometimes that one is for me to know, okay, he's gravitating towards the window, that's where he's (laughs) going to be, you know, but whatever that happens, so in that first rehearsal or take or film rehearsal, um, I'm just playing with those dimmers uh, like a DJ, and I'm like, okay, he's in that corner, so I'm going to switch this one down, and this one I'm going to bring it up a bit, so this is going to be the key, so that it's a bit dark, but I can see one of the eyes, and um, it was really like dancing, you know, around him. And then sometimes I would have a second chance, you know, on the second take, maybe a third take, but most of the time was really like a live jamming, wow. you what know. What was that like? Did you enjoy that experience? Yeah, it was challenge? very, very, very challenging. So at the beginning, you know, the first days when we figure out this is going to be the d- dynamic of the movie, it was, of course, very stressful because 
we were expecting a lot of things, you know, like a low-budget movie, you know, you don't have money, you don't have time, we've all done that. You have Shia doing something very emotional, it's going to be tricky, we could anticipate that, but we couldn't anticipate this degree of, you know, not control at all. Um, and so the first few days it was, yeah, it was very challenging, you know, because we were like, okay, we, we kind of make this plan, you know, like they're going to be more or less in this area because they are talking in the motel room inside. Yeah. So they can only be like, the, you know, there's the bed and there's a little bit of floor. Uh, but then when that started to go out the window, because suddenly he's like, no, I, my character is going to be, you know, half inside and half outside because he doesn't want to be in this room with this kid. And it's all about the kid's tension that the father can leave at any moment. So the scene has to be with the door open and I'm going to be almost gone all the time. Hmm. And you're like, that makes a lot of sense. It does. It's missing sense. It makes it hard, but a lot of yes, sense. Yes. Yeah. So of course it cannot be any other way. You know, any yeah. other way would not be so alive. But then like, well, but we schedule this to do it during the day and the scene is at night, so we can't really open the door. Yeah. Because if we open the door, we see that outside is day. Yeah. So then I had to, you know, deal with all these challenges without really having a big crew or a lot of equipment to do tents and things like that. Uh, and I would only know these things these big changes like last moment because it's only when he arrives and he starts to do it and feel it. Mm. Uh, so with the days, I had to develop tools and, and some kind of psychic powers <laughs> to anticipate to all this stuff and, and, you know, be able to just go along with it. So it was extremely challenging. Um, and luckily, we had the technology for the wireless with the yeah, lights because yeah. otherwise... I would have ended up with something a lot flatter just yeah. to cover ourselves. Because you can't tell when you watch the movie. It looks very cinematic. Yeah. And yeah. of course, you know, we, I, I would dim like very slowly so that, you know, you, so wouldn't, you wouldn't waste the take. Yeah. Uh, and luckily because of, you know, Alma's um, language, you know, for storytelling is not uh, conventional. Yeah. Know? She says, you know, she didn't go to film school. She's proud of that. She works in a very different way. So was that an extra a challenge or an extra interest for you? To well, you work know, with all the directors different? I work with are very different. None of them are conventional. Uh, you know, like Liam Ramsey, Nick Reffin, you know, like they're all very, very particular and they all have their own system and stuff. So um, that, that wasn't particularly scary or challenging or anything for me. I mean, that's the people I gravitate towards. So I like to shoot like that. But if we would have had a uh, director that it's much more conventional in the storytelling, in the way that the camera and the editing and the continuity works. Uh, it would have been a lot more difficult. But because Alma is interested in the same things that I'm interested as a... I mean, in this case, I wasn't operating the camera, but I'm directing my operator through the headsets anyway. And I'm choosing somebody that has my sen same sensibility. Um, and that also resonated with Alma's sensibility, which is... Uh, only really interested in emotion so it doesn't matter if you know you are not explaining the space so well at the beginning to establish it so that everyone understands or if there's like a jump on the line or like a little bit of continuity issue or something that is not explained with a close-up it's really about the emotion and so that approach uh, it's a lot more forgiving 
you know, in, mm-hmm. in terms of all this kind of jamming and improvising with the lights. So sometimes, you know, in the first take, I could, you know, be in one position with my dimmers. And then in the second take, you know, because I learned something, I would change it a little bit. Uh, but because the way that she's cutting, it's also very kind of jumpy. It, you don't see, you know, you don't see so much the, the difference. So yeah. you can actually do whatever is best each time for each take, in a way. Yeah. Alma said she chose you. One reason that she chose you was because you don't, you know, shoot in the same style every time. You have very different styles. And if you look at your filmography, it is very different. Mm. Is that something you try to consciously look for with each project, something you haven't done before? Um, Or is it more about the filmmaker that you want to work with? Yeah, I think think it's for me, it's really about the filmmakers uh, and it's, resonating with the script um, you know with with the story we're telling uh, how that story somehow uh, goes through me as a human uh, before thinking as a cinematographer you know and so I just have to feel very touched you know by the subject by the script and then I have to feel like the director is an artist that I want to collaborate with that I resonate with their voice with the type of stories they tell with, with how they tell them you know how they use film language uh, so it's always a combination of all these things and then I think what happens is you know every every film even if it was you know sometimes I work with the same director you know for a few projects but every film somehow needs its own palette of everything right of colors of camera moves of lighting um so i just try to find what's the right language for each film and i guess that's why they're all different mm. you know so I'm, I'm not um but I, I think most dps are like that I, I mean i always get told this and i don't quite understand yeah, it because yeah. it's like yeah is there is there a time when dps you know, try to put their own visual style into each film? Or do you think the primary role of a cinematographer is to service the director's vision? I think definitely our role is to service the director's vision. Uh, I think you don't go to a film with an agenda of like, oh, I really want to try whatever, blue light. Moody. Yeah, and now it's like, you know... Uh, well, of course, yeah, if you want to go into darkness, you're going to choose a thriller. You're not going to choose a comedy yeah. and try to bring your agenda of yeah. doing, you know, like Caravaggio. Like gritty, <laughs> gritty comedy. Yeah, I mean, or you're going to, you know, choose a gritty comedy, right? Um, but at the same time, I think somehow people also say that they can see... I mean, what they say to me is that they can also see my signature throughout all the movies, even if they're all very different in style. They can still tell that it's me. Mm. Now, that I don't know how it happens. Like, I, I don't have, uh, you know, an agenda of trying to establish my signature or anything. But I'm just a person. So whatever I do, I guess it has, you know, a part of me that you can recognize. And I think that's probably with every cinematographer if you look carefully and every editor and every musician you know with the musicians it's easier to say because you can hear you know there's some instruments and some motifs and some whatever sounds that are very particular to their palette right Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think we yeah we we all you know um, inevitably bring 
our signature to what we do. And you grew up in Argentina. Yes. Were you always interested in visual images? Did you watch a lot of films when you were young? Uh, I watched a lot of films. Yeah, my parents are very cinephiles. Um, Freudian uh, cinephiles. Freudian, <laughs> Freudian cinephiles. Love that. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, watch films. They, you know, I would go to the cinema with my dad almost every Tuesday, even if they weren't divorced and they're still together. But we had like our date date day uh, and so since I was a kid you know I was going to the cinema uh, and I remember things like Back to the Future and the Goonies like really making such an impact in my life mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and then I would watch also cinemas in you know in the TV at home and then we had our VHS player uh, when I was I don't know 10 or something everything arrives much later to Argentina than America um, Australia too, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I've always been interested in film. I didn't know what a cinematographer was, though. Um, when I was in high school, uh, probably like 16, 17, you know, there, there's these photographers that come once a year to take the photo of the whole group. Mm-hmm. So this guy came and then he said, like, oh, I'm going to do like this. Uh, photography you know classes on Thursdays after school if you want to sign up for and so you know I was like oh that's you know I would like to take photos whatever I didn't even have a camera Um, so I signed for that and uh, and I started to learn black and white photography and then I started to I went to school in Argentina uh, for black and white artistic photography wow. and I learned how to work in the dark room and develop and print my own photos and stuff and so I really became a photographer for a few years and then it was like at 19 or 20 that I discovered through some of my friends from photography school that were a bit older um, that they, you know, when they finished high school before me, they went to film school in Argentina. And so in film school, because they had experience as photographers, they became the cinematographers yeah. in, in the exercises and stuff. So I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Yeah. And that's how I got into it. And you went to the National Film and TV School, is that right? Yeah, so that was a kind of and that's pilgrimage until I got there. Yeah. Because I, at the time, first I was in Argentina, but when I was, so I did this photography, black and white thing. And then my parents, uh, my whole family, my parents, my sister and I moved to Spain, to Barcelona, just after I finished high school, when I was 18. Mm. Um, so when I got there, I knew I wanted to go to film school because my friends, you know, from Argentina had were in film school. Um, but I had to do all the exams to be able to enter in the university in Spain. They had to validate the Argentinian stuff. So that was like a whole year of things, oh, wow. preparation to do yeah. an exam. So in the meantime, I did like little courses here and there. And then I decided to go back to Argentina for my summer holidays because my boyfriend was there. <laughs> and then I just got a job in a photography magazine and I never came back. So I stayed in Argentina. So I actually started film school in Argentina. Mm. Uh, I was there for a few months. Then quickly I realized I could not support myself working in the magazine and going to film school because the day didn't have enough hours. Um, And then my parents were like, if you come back to Spain, we pay for film school. So I went back to Spain. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, did the whole thing, went to film school in Spain, finally got in, uh, and then I didn't like it. <laughs> so then I discovered the National Film School in England and I applied. Which is a tough program. They don't take many cinematographers. Yeah, they take, I don't know how it's now because it's almost 20 years ago, but um, yeah, they used to take like six people a year. And most people were experienced, you know, like camera assistants and people experienced in the film industry. I I wasn't, I was just like a, you know, interesting photographer. I wouldn't even say a good photographer. I was such a baby. Like I didn't know what I wanted to say about the world, (laughs) but I guess they could see some potential there in my photographs. So they let me in and yeah, so it was me with five older and a lot more experienced uh, camera assistants and photographers and stuff. And and so yeah, that's the one that I started and finished for three years and wow. um, the work where I learned everything. Yeah. And then what did you do when you got out of that? Was it difficult to break into the industry and start getting jobs? Uh, no, it wasn't because the school is so prestigious that actually the the industry in England really looks at the graduates. Uh, and I had a really cool graduation film. And so by the time I finished, I had like a, a nice reel with five or six ex, extert, expert, ex, how you say? Experts from short films. Oh, I yeah, had excerpts, yeah. Yeah, excerpts of short films I had shot. Um, and people like, you know, the graduation film a lot. So I... I got a really good agent straight away. Mm. Uh, and so I started to work a lot in short films. At the time, Film Council and Film 4 were funding a lot of shorts. So all that network of new filmmakers that I had met through three years in the film school uh, were now you know, doing their first you know, bigger short films uh, outside school and then their little, you know, first films and stuff so through that network we all kind of grew up together supported by film four and film film council and so i was doing that and then you know some documentaries some music videos like a little bit you know here and there for a couple of years until i started to i got like my first break on commercials and i started to do commercials and then that was great because then I could pay all my student debts. Yes. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and yeah, and so that, you know, that created the same structure that I still have today, which is that my commercials work allows me, it's like a kind of funding for the art house movies. So I can do Honey Boy, you know, and spend mm-hmm. three months in a project that is like really, you know, a passion project, but that you don't almost make any money. And then I just do commercials, uh, make a lot of money, so I compensate with that. Yeah. And then I can also, um, you know, for example, here in LA, with my crew, because we do all these commercials, then I can ask them, hey, can you now work for free for like five weeks on this? So, well, five weeks would be a lot for Honey Boy, but Gloria or Neon Demon, you know? Yeah. Can you work, you know, for a couple of weeks uh, on this, you know, very low budget movie, but that we're, we're going to be doing something, you know, cool and special. And then they can also afford to support me and follow me and do cool stuff because we have the commercials. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah. I'm sure you've been offered bigger studio films as well, but what keeps you going back to art house films, even though there's no money? <laughs> yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I think, um, yes, I've been offered a lot and I continue to be to get a lot of offers for a lot bigger films and studio films but I think 
because I was very lucky, you know, from the beginning, from film school, uh, to always be able to choose projects that touch my soul and that made me feel passionate and excited about what I was doing and to feel that somehow also they could have an impact in the world. Um, so everything I did had a lot of purpose. And then when I needed money, I just, you know, go and do a commercial, but it's only a few days. Mm. So even if it doesn't have purpose and I might be selling something that I actually don't ethically agree so much <laughs> on selling, it's only three or four days and I'm making the money that I would do in three months of TV or whatever. Um, so I had the luxury to to always have a choice and 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 so the stakes get very high and and you just you just don't want to be for three or four months of your life uh, doing something that you don't believe on mm. and for me that that is really important and sometimes I wish it wasn't that important because you know then I maybe would have a bigger house and yeah. <laughs> but uh, it is very important for me and I feel. I feel there's a responsibility and, a, and a accountability also, you know, as, as an artist. And and so, yeah, the moment that I get offered a, a big project that, you know, that resonates with me and that I feel it's in my path, I will do it. Um, and there have been some cases where it was, you know, quite pretty much all the stars lining up but then like at the same time I got Honey Boy you know or Neon mm. Demon mm -hmm. and I was like I gotta do this yeah I just have to I mean my soul my heart is with this little one so I just have to follow that you know yeah and so I, I make those choices and um, yeah it's uh, I don't know it's the way it is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you love about your job as a cinematographer I love so many things um on the job itself, I just love, you know, connecting with a story that I really feel it, it's worth telling and, you know, connecting with a director that I really resonate with and create something together, you know, and find how with my cinematography tools I can help this director's vision and tell this story in the most compelling way mm. uh, to reach people's emotions and, and all of that um, on the working level uh, I love working with other people you know I love working also with actors who are amazing creatures you know who expose themselves so much more than us you know like going through all this internal stuff to um, bring these characters to life and I love working with production designers, with costume designers, you know, with all these different artists that are caring about all these fantastic details from another angle and, and this sense of community, you know, of just um, creating with others, you know. I like mm -hmm. painting, you know, I paint at home sometimes when I have time and, you know, there's a lot of things that are very creative that I like to do on my own. I like gardening a lot as well. And, you know, I used to do a little bit of music when I had more time. Uh, but the creating with other people is really special, mm. you know. It's, it's like a whole other thing. And I think I really love that also about being a cinematographer and working with my crew, you know, and, and just this 
idea of like a lot of people working towards one objective, you know, one goal. And it's not just you and your dream and your ambition. It's like everyone collectively working for something. And that creates a great sense of community and family that it's amazing. How do you feel once it goes out into the world? You know, Neon Demon, for example, had mm. a pretty sharp reaction in mm. Cannes. You know, Honey Boy has gotten such a great reaction so far. Does does that matter to you, how it's received by people? Or is it all about the experience you had? Well, of course. I mean, it is all about the experience. But, of course, it matters a lot also how it's received, you know, by people. Because eventually that's what you made it for. And so you want people to to feel it and to resonate with it, you know. Uh, it was it was hard with Neon Demon because we, you know, we really believed we were taking a lot of uh, um, risks uh, from an artistic point of view and and really being very bold and brave and and delivering you know a, a piece of uh, cinema really not movie or entertainment like it was cinema and you know when when you take so many risks. Uh, you also make mistakes, and so we knew that you know that the as as a whole thing, the film was not perfect. But we were very proud that we had never stayed in our comfort zones, mm. and that we had something strong to say, and we tried to say it in a smart way uh, and in a kind of quite risky um, visual way. And we would just go all the way, and if we fail, we fail. And and we thought we didn't fail in the end, and, the, and that it was something very special. And so it was great um, to you know to be in Europe. And yeah, even though the you know there was mixed critics in Cannes, but you know the the people that we respect, the filmmakers that we respect, and the and the magazines and you know the critics that we respect, everyone uh, you know they might have some critics to the movie, but they really love the movie and they really. Uh, recognize the artistic achievement of the movie uh, so that was you know really amazing to see okay like the people that I respect mm-hmm. respects what we did you know as a process and as the final result you know with with its imperfections but like fucking like brave piece of filmmaking you know yeah. um, uh, and so yeah it was a bit sad that in the United States I think people didn't get it so much you know and they were they were angry <laughs> with it, and I think angry about maybe not really understanding um, that we were actually criticizing the same thing that we were showing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just feels that it was too complex, maybe for for the, the typical American audiences. So that that was really disappointing. Um, but you know, with the years, um, I just love you know every time I meet people that I respect they super respect the movie whether they felt uncomfortable or not yeah uh, they really respect the journey that the movie took them and r- really respect it as a piece of you know brave extreme filmmaking and so that's all you can hope for you know because that's all all I want to do I don't want to do anything that is safe um, or that it's going to be broad that everyone is going to like um, it's not who I am. It's not the, the art that I like. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the cinematography was definitely talked about in that film and it had such a striking look. And I was reading that often on your films, you are part of the colour grading process as well, which I'd never really thought about with cinematographers. I don't know if that's a, a normal thing for cinematographers to be part of that or if they usually just do the job on the set and leave. But why is that part important to you? No, it, it is important for all of us. And historically, we always do it. Uh, when we used to shoot on film, um, you know, we'll be in the lab grading the film. There wasn't there wasn't so much leeway where to go because it's like you expose the negative and, you know, then you can fine-tune it in the lab. You would go a little bit darker, a little bit brighter, one point of magenta, two points of yellow. <laughs> it was really just the fine-tuning. It wasn't whatever you did on camera, that's pretty much it. Uh, nowadays with digital, whatever you do on camera can be taken to a complete different place because there's so much latitude, you know. Even like me and a lot of DPs that are old school, we do everything on camera. So all the extreme, bold, color decisions that I made, they're all on camera and they're pretty much irreversible. Um, but even with that approach, they can still change it so much in post-production just because you have so much range to go. So now it's more important than ever that cinematographers are part of the grading process because mm -hmm. if we are not present in the room and we haven't we don't have a workflow in which you know you have like color you know color um, CDLs um, that can tell the grader exactly how you were seeing it in the monitor and what lookup tables you applied and what grading you applied on set and stuff so they could translate technically and have exactly the same thing that you had in the monitor. Uh, that's always kind of the starting point. So you make sure that the day that you arrive to the grade, you're seeing something that is exactly what you are seeing, and then you can work from there. It's kind of like going to the lab in the old times. But if you don't have that and you're not there, like, could go like totally different. So yeah. then your work as a cinematographer on set would only be like a 10% of what's the final image. That's how much it can be altered right now. And that's why, you know, now more than ever, all cinematographers were really, you know, fighting and making sure that we get paid to be, you know, for one or two weeks minimum uh, with bigger movies, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know, some DPs get like 20 weeks. Um, but, uh, you know, that you get the minimum amount of time so that you can control that they look like that you establish in pre-production and on set and you shot on your camera is actually going to be the look that you have at the end. That totally makes sense. Yeah. It's something I hadn't even thought of before. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's a big it's a big thing. It's yeah. a big thing. And yeah, I mean, most of the time it's respected, uh, but, you know, there's still gray, gray zones and, you know, usually you get paid half. So, like, if you have two weeks to grade, you get paid for one week. Oh, right. Uh, but it's complicated because, you know, by the time that you're grading the movie it's like six months later or more because they've been editing and stuff you're in another movie mm -hmm. so in in my career like sometimes i turn down movies because if i would do them i would not be present for the grading for the grading of my mm -hmm. previous movie and i could not just put all the effort that goes into doing a movie and then at the last moment just leave it up to fate how it's gonna look in the end mm. it's just too painful so there's still a lot of work to do, I think, and we're talking about that at the ASC sometimes, you know, about how we can 
really get this, uh, you know, more recognized as a very important part of our process and our signature, you know, as the directors of photography of one piece and, and how, you know, we, we, we can get productions to help us financially be able to be there. Because there's a lot of people that, you know, they couldn't they afford it. Yeah, they couldn't they, afford yeah, it, you know, they to take another job. Yeah, they yeah. It, so, yeah, you know, it should be ways of, now we have a lot more resources, you can grade remotely and stuff, so... So for me, it's always what I'm doing is like I, you know, I have a, you know, I try to grade always with the same person and I create my lookup table with this colorist before I start the movie. So then on set, I have my DIT. We're working on that lookup table. So it's that film stock that we created mm -hmm. and I'm grading a little bit on set. And then when I finish, my DIT will send all the grading decisions that we did, it will all be in a metadata with the material. So when it goes to my colorist, he has the direct translation because he created that lot. So he gets the information, he pressed the bottom, that's like Natasha's look. <laughs> and then he pressed the other bottom, and it's like, and that's if she made it darker or a bit more cyan or whatever on set with the DIT. And so he's got a starting point that is like 99% accurate to what I saw in my monitor in the movie. Great. So, and then you tweak it from there. And then you tweak. So hopefully you just go for a week or two and you just tweak things depending on the movie. You know, like sometimes you need to tweak more than others, depending how much you could solve things on set or you had to, you didn't have time. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the way for me to, like, you know, cover myself. But even though I do that, I'm always, until now, I've been at the, at the grades, you know, and I will always try to be. Well, congratulations on Honey Boy and, you. and your whole career. I can't <laughs> wait to see what you do next. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, a big thank you to Natasha Breyer for talking to me. Wasn't that so interesting? And you can see Honey Boy in theatres now. I definitely recommend checking it out. It is a fascinating and emotional experience. And truly, I think Shia LaBeouf is one of the most interesting actors working today. I mean, all the stuff that he does behind the scenes, all of his artworks. I mean, just such a fascinating, brave and intelligent man. So this is my second last episode of Magnificent Obsession for now. I have just got so much work on at the moment that I feel like I can't adequately put my time towards this podcast, but I really do love doing it. So hopefully next year I'll be back, but I will have one more episode for you next week, and that is with the editor of Honey Boy. So you get to hear the other side of how they put this film together in the post-production side of things. Until then, um, make sure you share with this with your friends. I mean, the episodes aren't going to go anywhere so there's a lot of episodes of people who are all working behind the scenes of movies that are really interesting to listen to so thank you all for listening and i'll be back next week bye